we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. There is another COVID-19 variant of concern that has officials perplexed, just like the last one. Be calm and vaccinate on here, Scott Thompson! There you go. Good advice from the boy. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board today and picking the tune today, I might add. Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks uh, in the newsroom and will join us around the big round table coming up uh, after the 4.30 news. You don't want to miss that. Uh, Will, explain your song today. I like it. And, you know, I can't remember the last time we played a top hour tune with the bongos in it. <laughs> oh, it's a thing uh, of beauty, isn't it? Oh, I love it bongos. Is. <laughs> So, so how is, did you find this? Tell everybody what it is and, and where'd you dig this up? So this is called Tank, and it's by a jazz group called Seatbelt. I first heard it in a show called Cowboy Bebop, uh, which is from the late 90s. And recently on Netflix, they made a live action version of it with John Show. Wow. Once again, Will Weber, you have amazed us with your musical prowess. I mean, you are from either end. You go uh, spectrum. There's no spectrum here. It's a full circle, my goodness. Uh, very interesting. I'm also, I can't wait to hear Ted Michaels' take on that Ooh. and uh, what he thought of all of that. Thanks, Will, as always. And uh, we have Will one, uh, number one, Will number two. You can't go wrong. Uh, two Wills are better than one. Uh, as well, uh, Will will join us around the round table coming up after the 4.30 news as well. Another jam pack show coming up as we uh try to uh you know figure out what uh, uh omicron is all about and again you know i think something that as i'm thinking about this last night I'm like oh man here we go again uh remember we felt the same way about delta and we were concerned about that and now delta is the prevalent strain that uh, is infecting most people uh, and I believe, uh, and I don't don't quote me on this, uh, third generation of concern that uh, very much became a concern. And there's lots and lots of variants, but it, it takes uh, obviously something more to become a variant of concern. So I, I don't want to downplay what Omicron is because, frankly, we don't know yet. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to remember we are, uh, like, my goodness, in Ontario, we're up over 90% with the first vaccine, uh, well over 86%, I believe, with the second. So the, that's the difference between when Delta started and when uh, Omicron started. So it's something to keep in mind, again, as the course of the day goes on and more information becomes available. And, you know, it's it's like anything. Remember after all the, all the long weekends, I don't know how many times I said, so, doctor, we're going to wait another two weeks see what happens here and how far it goes and remember after every long holiday then there was a spike in cases but then vaccines started to come in and you know finally around uh, may june we started to get mass vaccination going on and we saw that trend you know change i mean the the, the cases were still there but obviously the rates of infection and uh, that caused hospitalization were way down so again let's keep this all in perspective and you know obviously it is a very Variant of concern. That's why it is called such. Uh, and and let's just keep up doing what we're doing. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, we we wondered when this would all end, and uh, you know, you have to wonder whether it ever will or not. I mean, this is just the ongoing, uh, ongoing life now that we lead in a uh, in a global world. So more on that as the afternoon progresses, and trying to get you more information as we can. Also, going to uh, touch on the small business spotlight as usual, and it's Giving Tuesday. Is Giving Tuesday getting as much attention as Black Friday and Cyber Monday? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on with the CEO of Food Banks Canada. By the way, food bank usage way up during the pandemic. So if you can, help out as much as you can and contribute to the local food bank. Also, a gentle reminder on that, hit our website, 900chml.com, the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign in full swing. And coming up this Friday, uh, broadcasting live from uh, the CHML tree lighting at Gore Park. So things slowly, 
slowly getting back to normal. But again, don't forget our uh, charities during this time of need as well. Also going to talk to TV critic Bill Brio coming up in a bit. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel's at it again. Remember when he did uh, the remakes of, uh, of uh, in front of a, a studio audience, uh, did All in the Family and such. Now uh, there's other shows coming to the forefront that he's going to be doing, including starring Jennifer Anderson. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on, just to get away from the Omicron, which we'll talk about in the uh, 4 o'clock hour and give you the latest update on what it is, what we know about it. And around we go again. Also, the roundtable with Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, and Will Weber is going to be joining us as well. Also, a new report from uh, the Canadian Medical Association giving us a snapshot of the impact that this pandemic has had on the health of Canadians. Uh, and that's not necessarily to anything to do with COVID, but just the delays in surgeries and such that we've seen as a result of that. Also, travel and travel restrictions. What does this do for the travel industry now that we've heard uh, obviously travel restrictions, at least for uh, uh, parts of South Africa. So that's coming up a little later on in the show as well. And also the Ghislaine Maxwell trial began yesterday. Uh, and we're going to talk to uh, somebody from the Washington Post on what the first two days of this trial has been about and what is in store uh, moving forward. Apparently, it's supposed to be a long trial at six weeks. And why does this and will it have the world's attention uh, until it, it comes to an end? Or uh, will it just simply fall by the wayside? And uh, another story that uh, in a COVID-19 world uh, doesn't garner much attention. However, we must remember the victims in this as well. Uh, so that's a chat we're going to have coming up a little later on. Also going to talk to Scott Radley at the end of the end of the show, talking about Tiger Woods and the future. Obviously, he says it looks like he's hanging it up uh, for good. Many are saying he's lucky to be alive and even walking. So we'll have those discussions coming up a little later on, uh, maybe on the roundtable as well. Also, your poll question of the day you can find on our Twitter page. Also, check out our Facebook page. Uh, should we close the borders until we know uh, more about Omicron? Uh, 53% of you are saying yes. Not sure I agree with that at this time. Um, but again, uh, we certainly do have to be aware of it, be concerned of it, and keep the protocol uh, up. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of people who are uh, planning to travel or were, especially now with the U.S. over Thanksgiving and then uh, into Christmas time, uh, obviously lots of travel. And many are, uh, I suppose, questioning that again. Uh, would you feel you know, good buying tickets right now uh, as you hear of, of what we've heard in the last day or so? So, you know, a- another pause, but certainly not necessarily a step backwards. And we have to remember that moving forward. A report from Feed Ontario, a collective of hunger relief organizations says nearly 600,000 people made more than 3.6 million visits to food banks in Ontario between April of last year and March 31st of this year. The number of those who needed basic food support has increased by 10% year over year. Interim Executive Director Siyumi Cheng says COVID-19 has exacerbated the income insecurity and housing affordability issues. The report shows 86% of food bank visitors are rental tenants rather than social housing tenants. Karen Rebo the Canadian Press, Toronto. Of course, Giving Tuesday following uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and, and pretty much a, a social media movement which started back in, in 2020 and the hashtag took off and the rest is history, as they say. And and I, I think what makes Giving Tuesday interesting is it, it's just helping. J- just figure out a way to help. doesn't matter what you do. Uh, it's not like there's a job. It's not like there's a role. It's not like there's a specific thing that you have to do. It's just what's the best way for you to help, whether that's making a donation to your favorite charity, whether it's volunteering hours, whether it's collecting food for a food bank and dropping it off or, or, or what have you. And so really the great thing about it is that it's, it's effortless in the sense that the only thing you really have to do is pick something nice to do and see it through. So uh, hopefully Giving Tuesday has as much impact as a Black Friday, as a uh, Cyber Monday 
does. And at that point, at this point, rather, I, I want to remind you to go to our website at 900chml.com. Uh, it is the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign, which really has been on hold during COVID uh, for obvious reasons. We weren't able to help the charities we did uh, last year or in the years previous to COVID last year. And now is the first time where, we're, you know, the, the slowly the doors are opening up and the handcuffs are coming off and we can go outside and see what's going on. And it's the first year back of, of, of reopening uh, the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. I mean, it was there yesterday, but but on, or last year rather, but it was online. And this year sort of, you know, starting to open up again and coming up this Friday at uh, Gore Park, we'll have the CHML tr- uh, tree lighting live the way we have been in years past. So uh, good news that things are starting to move forward, but let's talk more about this day and more uh, of what you can do and specifically zero in on food banks because we, as we just heard in the last report, over this uh, global pandemic, they have been uh, used even more so uh, than they have in the past. Let's bring in David Armour, CEO of Food Banks Canada, and with us now. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great. Thank you, Scott, for a great introduction to Giving Tuesday. So let's talk a little bit about this, and then we'll, we'll get more into Food Banks Canada and the situation that we were talking about in the report. Uh, but, but what does such a day mean to you? How much of an impact does it make? Well, it has a huge impact uh, because, as you said, it was meant to follow um, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. It was meant to be a counterpoint or a bookend on the other end of the books to say uh, it's not all about buying things. It's also about looking after people. And so people, as you said, has, have a chance to stop, to pause on Giving Tuesday and say, what organizations are important to me? What groups in my own community do I want to be helping and supporting? And how can I make a difference in the lives of others? And just thinking as we head into the Christmas season, and so delighted that your Christmas tree of hope is, is back on again. That's fantastic. Um, but it's just a chance for everybody to pause and do that. And so food banks, like all other organizations, are saying, Hey, there's an opportunity here to make a meaningful difference in the lives of others. Does it have the same impact as those other two days? Is it gaining momentum since 2012? I think it's gaining momentum and visibility, and it's gaining focus, and there's there's lots of good stories to be had um, in terms of new ways of doing it that different organizations are testing. Um, and like you said, the, the, the really interesting facts, uh, we had the hunger count, a few weeks ago and, and Feed Ontario this morning, they released just a great research report, as you heard in the summary, of uh, 3.6 million visits in Ontario, increase of 10% in the number of people needing food. Um, with COVID, uh, we've seen the sort of the, the perfect storm of uh, increased food prices, increased housing prices, and now reduced uh, social uh, service support. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, a lot more people coming to food banks, and we're expecting it to get worse in the coming months. And, you know, I remember talking to organizers of food banks uh, years and years ago, decades ago, a couple of decades ago, and, and I remember them saying, you know, when these started, they were only supposed to be a temporary measure. Uh, and now look what's happened once you add a global pandemic into the mix. Exactly. Um, and we're not, uh, we're, we're still focusing on advocacy as well. Um, we do think that, uh, that we need to deal with the root causes of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And we do need to look at the, the level of benefits being given to people, the support being given to low income people that are in rental markets, um, the support given to the elderly on fixed incomes, and the support on disability pensions. Those are a number of areas where we're seeing those exact people coming into food banks. Um, and those are areas that can be addressed uh, as a society. You know, just like we saw with the healthcare industry during this global pandemic, it's made us focus on on these issues and where the weak links are. And as you're saying, with the food banks, I mean, it's it's becoming more prevalent now. We can see exactly. And uh, and what we're saying on a Giving Tuesday is uh, it's not just advocacy and government uh, changes and government support. It's also what each one of us can do. So it's about. Uh, donating food, donating funds, and donating time. It's about people, uh, your listeners across the CHML listening audience saying, you know, I'm giving Tuesday, I, I can do something, I can support my local food bank. Um, and it's about saying between now and Christmas, there's more that I could do here, and I could give some time.
Do you think it'll be different this year, David, from last year? I, I, I mean, you know, we were sort of restricted. People still gave but and could do so online. But as we mentioned, at least now we're sort of started to come out a bit more. And, and a pandemic's left us in a different frame of mind. Uh, do you see more empathy? Do you see more giving? Will we see more giving post-pandemic, do you think? I think so. We're seeing tremendous empathy right now. We're seeing people really understand how... Uh, Families need food and individuals that are living alone need food. Um, And we're seeing a lot of food being dropped off at food banks. And conversely, we've got a huge number of food banks across the country that are also delivering food now. We've got volunteers that pick the food up at the food bank and take it to the person's home. So they don't go have to, in a COVID environment, they don't have to go out and put themselves at risk. So we're seeing a, a number of innovative, creative ways of working differently um, across the country on that. But Really, really lots and lots of generation of generosity we're seeing. You know, in the in the in the one month of March across the country we had one point three million visits to food banks. And as you heard, three point six million visits in uh, in Ontario. And the reason reason we were able to, to respond to those people in all those visits is that food was all donated. The food and that money was all donated um, so that people could be helped and uh, that's just enormous amount of generosity. What's the best way Hamiltonians can help Food Banks Canada? Is it a food donation? Is it a cash donation? It's both. Whatever works. Uh, we're happy to accept uh, food and funds um, and time, volunteer time for, uh, for those that are able to do that as well. And it's just each person saying within their mix, what can they do? On Giving Tuesday, there's the, there's some, some incentive and some opportunity to go online and make a gift right now or to even drop off some food right now. But uh, uh, but also to think about between now and Christmas, how would how would they give food and funds? And we've also got some some great corporations that are helping out. We've got Skip the Dishes, which have a special incentive today, um, right across the country on Giving Tuesday, and and Air Miles, which has a special incentive. So we're we've got organizations that are also saying, uh, you know, we we support the generosity. David Armour with us, CEO Food Banks Canada, and we certainly know how much usage is up during this global pandemic. And again, give in any way you can. David, as always, thanks so much for the time and all the work that you do. Good luck this season. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for this show. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The story in regard to uh, Omicron is uh, is breaking quite rapidly. Uh, we're just uh, getting news now of uh, another case that's been reported, this time in Alberta. This is of the new variant uh, in Alberta. That brings uh, six cases uh, in Canada, which obviously we were expecting. And also, uh, as we speak, there's a news conference going on uh, involving uh, an update on this and uh, all air travelers except those from the United States uh, must be tested now and three more African countries have been added uh, to the uh, the no-fly uh, uh, ban so that's where we are right now moving forward uh, obviously it's going to take another week or so uh, week 10 days 14 days we're being told to really figure out what this is all about let's bring in Stephanie DeWitt uh, Stephanie DeWitt or Associate Professor of Health Sciences and Biology under graduate advisor of health sciences wilford laurier university and with us now stephanie thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yes thanks for having me i'm doing fine so your thoughts on this new variant that we're hearing about and obviously uh more and more uh up to I guess six cases now in canada uh, your thoughts how, how do we take this as canadians yeah so i think we take this with um awareness but um, just we have to have a little bit of patience. Like you said, um, we just don't know that much about Omicron yet, and there's going to need to be some time to figure that out. So um, I think awareness is important. I think people need to know that it exists, that it, because of the mutations it contains, it has the capacity to be something um, more transmissible um, and something that may be able to evade our vaccines. So just to be aware Make sure you're following public health guidelines and keep in tune with, with the news so that you're aware of what's happening next and what we find next. And obviously, I can't get you to look into a crystal ball here, but any idea of what that timeline is? I remember when we were talking before uh, in the first, second waves, uh, obviously, after holiday weekends and people would gather, it would be like two weeks, and then we'd start to see the uptick. When will we know more about what this new variant is all about? Um, pretty much 
the timeline that you mentioned, I think, is a pretty reasonable timeline, 10 to 14 days, because we're just, uh, the data is so new. And I, and I think that that's a really um, exemplary for Southern African countries to flag this as a, as a variant and, and to be very public and transparent about it so that everybody knows that this variant exists. I think that's really amazing that they did that. They, they, they put that out there. But they, mm-hmm. there's still just not enough information yet. You know, you know we, we don't know whether the rise, substantial rise in cases that were observed in Southern African countries um, is just because there was a lot of unvaccinated people hanging around together and it would have happened if it was Delta or Omicron. Or is it because Omicron is indeed a more transmissible virus? Um, we also don't know at this point whether those people, those individuals were vaccinated or not. You know, so we have to, there's, there's got to be some time to, to dig a little deeper, find out a little bit more um, about this strain. And of course, detecting, you know, where is it, um, how many people have it. And, and of course, there's going to be way more than we think there are because we just started looking for it. Um, so, you know, the strain was here before we knew it was here. And, and that's what happened with Delta as well. You know, we realized what we're looking for. We look for it and we find it. Um, you so brought up with this. you brought up Delta, Stephanie, and I remember when the Delta virus came out, it, it, the Delta variant, everybody was very concerned about that and what this represented. And again, as you mentioned with this one, what the, the first appearance was, was that it was more transmissible, not necessarily any more resistant to uh, vaccine or in, in any way any more dangerous. Is there any reason to believe Omicron is any different than Delta at this point? Yes, that's a really great question. And um, what all we know now is genetic information about the virus. So what we can do is we can look at the genome, that RNA that the virus holds, see what it looks like and see how different it is from Delta or Beta or Mu. Um, and what's unique about Omicron is that there are at least 50 mutations in Omicron, 30 of which are in the spike protein. And because that spike protein, I'm sure everyone's aware of that, right? It's on the outside of the virus. It's Mm -hmm. the protein that's needed to get into the cell. It's also the protein that our vaccine is directed against. So when you have 30 mutations in the spike protein, that increases the chance that those mutations could help the virus, that help the virus get into the cell, help the virus evade the vaccine. So there, there, that's the reason why the World Health Organization put Omicron in the variant of concern category so quickly instead of a variant of interest because of that amount of mutations. And not just the number, but, you know, where they were in the spike protein, but also we kind of know a little bit about mutations looking at, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, mu. And the mutations in Omicron are similar to Delta in those mutations that aid with transmission, but it's also similar to Beta in the immune evasion mutations. So I should say with a caveat, those mutations also existed in Mu and nothing really happened with Mu. So (laughs) we don't know for sure. All we can say is red flags. These are red flags. We should keep an eye on this. And obviously, the best way to stop things from mutating is to put an end to it through vaccine. In other words, if there was, there's only like 7% of, uh, of Africa that's vaccinated, if those numbers were higher, these mut- uh, mutations would have a, 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 a less of a time to spread. Absolutely. So, and, 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 and not even just time to spread, but time to develop. So a virus, when it, rep- when it copies itself, it, it makes these mutations. And if you stop the virus from being able to replicate, it can't make new mutations. So if you have everyone vaccinated, the virus isn't transmitting, it's not able to replicate, it can't make mutations. So absolutely, global uh, vaccination is going to be really important and integral to stop uh, this virus from being able to replicate and make new mutations. Because, I mean, that's what viruses do. They're going to replicate, they're going to make mutations. So any advice to some that may be listening and might be feeling anxious about that, like, oh, my goodness, here we go again. What what, what advice would you say at this point? At this point, just follow public health guidelines. Um, There's nothing yet. I know I'm going to say this, and tomorrow there's going to be clear news that Omicron is dangerous. But at this point in time, we don't know that. 
So all we know is that it is a variant of concern. It has mutations that could be something we need to look at. Just follow public health guidelines. Be aware. I'm a strong proponent of if you can get your hands on antigen testing, rapid testing kits. If you if you know you're going into a situation where you are going to be close um, in close proximity with individuals um, inside with masks off, have everyone do an antigen test. The antigen test can detect Omicron, and it's just a peace of mind thing. Of course, I understand not everyone has the funds to be able to do that. So, it, but if you can, that that's another uh, way of of protecting yourself. But otherwise. Stay six feet apart, wear a mask, wash your hands. All those things would work with Omicron. I think what's key is to know viruses don't have legs. They can't jump. They can't get to you. You know, um, they only get to you if you if you don't follow public health guidelines and you, you make poor choices. And then, of course, you know, you can be exposed to the virus. Stephanie DeWitt Orr with his Associate Professor of Health Sciences and Biology, Undergraduate Advisor of Health Sciences, Wilfred Laurier. Stephanie, thanks for the time and the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, thank you. You too. Stay safe. Will Weber on the board. Diana Weeks and Ted Michaels in the newsroom making the way around the big round table to discuss the issues of the day. Uh, good afternoon to you all. We hope you're having a great day around the big round table. Well, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's one of those days. You know what? Yeah. It's, you know, yesterday we both ha- had a case of the Monday, just kind of a, you know, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was not, it was not pleasant. Just, you know, Monday watching football and, you know, just we needed more coffee. So today's a little better than yesterday. Yes. Yes. Uh, except for that dang variant that keeps hanging around yeah. and uh, changing things as we go. I guess the latest update is we're up to six in Canada. One just reported from, uh, uh, Alberta mm-hmm. testing positive for the new uh, Omicron. Omicron. I keep saying Omicron. It's Omicron uh, variant. And let's start with the poll question of the day. And we're hearing more about this. And, and I guess I should preface this question by saying this, that now uh, testing is required for anyone that lands at a Canadian airport from all destinations except the United States. Yep. Uh, at this point, there are no U- uh, cases reported in the U.S., but I think that has more to do with testing than anything. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so anything that's coming in from uh, other than the United States, everybody has to get tested. So should the borders be closed until we know more about this, or is this the same as we were experiencing when Delta was first uh, on the scene? Ted? I think financially, when you think of closing the borders once again, I mean, we're yeah. just getting back up and at it, and, you know, that that would be you know, even more devastating. I like what the announcement is that we just broke with at 430 that everybody except from the states will have to be tested for COVID-19 upon arrival. I know a lot of people when this thing first started were saying how come the government didn't do that then a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. While they're doing it now they're being proactive and I, I applaud that. Diana? Yeah agreed. I mean uh, the proactiveness if we can say that is is I think what is what counts this time. I'd rather they do all this than you know than wait. Uh, so I feel a little bit better this time around for sure. So are you all for testing anyone who comes in at an airport with the exception of the United States? Well that's uh, what they're saying, yeah. Yeah. But I so don't know are, if I'm for that, though. I mean, I think everyone should be tested. I don't know if there should be any exceptions uh, right now. I guess that was, I guess that was my next question. Yeah. Why does the U.S. get an exemption? Is because it's their, our neighbor. Uh, they are our neighbors. There's no really reported case of, uh, cases of it at this time. Yet. Uh, uh, do you think yep. it should include the United States? It it may. Uh, down the road, it, it may. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think this it goes to the whole, do you really want to, you know, upset people and the border and everything else? So, you know, we'll see what happens. Let's just hope that we have a handle on it. And they're saying it's not, you know, let's not have doom and gloom here. But um, we'll And again, I think what's really important to remember in this, uh, in comparing it back to Delta, we have 90% of the population in Ontario vaccinated. And that is the best way to stop the variant. So, uh, obviously, those that are unvaccinated, uh, it's still of a concern to them. But we are at a much better place now than we were in the first, second, third stages of all of this. Will, do you want to weigh in? Uh, I mean, yeah, I generally agree. As long as it's unilateral, I don't see an issue with rapid testing. Or, I mean, obviously, I don't want the border to close again. As Ted said, economically, that would be awful. 
Um, Does this change travel plans now? I mean, were you, you know, uh, we're seeing more planes in the sky. Uh, I heard friends anecdotally saying it's it's hard to get a passport right now. You got to line up, you know, around the block because everybody is looking to to get traveling. Uh, and we're going to talk to uh, someone in the travel industry coming up very shortly. But uh, do you think this is going to put a pause on anyone who was thinking of jumping and, and getting on a plane? Well, it's not going to stop the people who are dead set on going somewhere, but people who want to get together for the holidays are probably SOL. All right. Any the other two want to weigh in on that? No, going to get on a plane? No, I think we're... Nah, I think uh, we've no, talked no, about no. this before. No. I mean, I, I, I don't think travel should be necessary right now as it is. Like, But I, if you've got family across the country that you need to go visit or in the States for Christmas, I mean, it, that's where it gets tricky, right? So... All right, let's uh, get off the COVID. Uh, Tuesday, it's Giving Tuesday. Does this get the same attention as Black Friday or Cyber Monday? It's been a fact of social media thing since about 2012. Your thoughts on Giving Tuesday, Ted? Is it as big as the other two? No, unfortunately, it's not, and it should be. But a lot of people, again, don't know. A lot of people aren't on social media. They don't know. We have to keep getting the message out because, let's face it, uh, Cyber Monday and Black Friday is all about uh, spending money and about the businesses, and there's nothing wrong with that at all but this is a a much deeper if you will opportunity for people to actually show that they care uh, and not just you know spend money willy-nilly so uh, a lot more marketing of this event a lot more promotion sponsorship uh, opportunities for this event I think uh, have to be out there because I, I I would suggest if you went down the street and asked I don't know 20 people what Giving Tuesday is you probably get a blank look from a lot of them Diana, your thoughts? Yeah. People your age. Yeah, I think people, like, I'm seeing a lot of it on social media today. Um, and, you know, for myself, I woke up and I said, oh, yeah, it's Giving Tuesday because I saw that on, you know, the, on Twitter, on Instagram, that kind of thing. So for me, uh, it's there, but I, I do get, like, you know, a lot of people are left out of the loop because maybe they don't, they're not on social media, maybe the older generation. So hopefully it catches on a little bit more and maybe, you know, every year it grows a bit more. Uh, even younger, Will, your thoughts. Uh, is Cyber Monday catching on? Is it getting traction? Will it be as big as the other two? Well, Giving Tuesday. Giving uh, Tuesday. Yeah, pr- probably not. I've been getting a- an inordinate amount of emails about Cyber Monday sales continuing into here and nothing about Giving Tuesday. If I didn't work here and my sister didn't work at Mission Services, I don't think I would know what it is. Wow, there you go. Here's hoping it does get more uh, coverage then. All right, the Gillian Maxwell case in day number two. Uh, We're going to talk to somebody about this a little later on in the show. Will this case captivate the world? Will we be watching this for the next several weeks? Um, Your thoughts, Ted? Nope, not at all. I think, first of all, people don't know who she is, number one. Those of us that are following this story in the news do, but most people, I I would think it's like, you know what, who cares? My Uh, opinion. Uh, obviously, Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein, if we want to remind everybody yeah. what has happened there. Uh, your thoughts, Diana? Yeah, I don't think it's going to get a lot of attention. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't deserve attention. I feel like just, you know, because he's out of the picture now um, doesn't necessarily mean we don't need to pay attention to what happened here and give, you know, these victims their, uh, you know, their spotlight as well. So, I mean, I'll be keeping an eye on it. But again, we do work in the news, maybe for the regular person that's out there. Maybe they're not invested as much as we are. All right. Thank you, Roundtable. As always, another great show. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly uh, talked over this, uh, the length of this global pandemic, over a year and a half now, about how uh, this has drawn attention to our healthcare system, the weak links in the chain, and of course, how it coped with uh, a global pandemic and the results of having to do just that. Now, a new report released today from the Canadian Medical Association gives gives us a disturbing snapshot of the impact that this COVID-19 pandemic has had on the health of Canadians and the healthcare system itself. Let's bring in Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I am. Thanks for having me. So, Doctor, obviously we're well into this. Uh, I don't know what we're at now, 89, 90 weeks, uh, well over a year and a half. As you look back on how the healthcare system has coped with this, what stands out to you? What has been the biggest challenge here uh, from where we are at this point? 
There's been so many challenges, but I think, you know, what we're really learning looking at this report is just how our acute care system being so overwhelmed in caring for patients with COVID has really compromised the care of other patients with other conditions. You know, the surgical and procedural backlogs are directly attributable to hospitals being overwhelmed with COVID cases. Um, But, you know, in addition to that, we're also really seeing the broad reaching impacts of COVID outside the hospital, rising concerns with mental health, more deaths from opioid overdose and and social determinants getting worse with things like rising food insecurity and increasing racism. So there's really no aspect, I don't think, of people's health that hasn't been impacted. I remember earlier on in this pandemic having discussions, debate, some heated at times with with uh, with various listeners and such, uh, talking about how this isn't killing people, this isn't doing that, this isn't as bad as what they say it is. But it seemed we weren't able until probably about halfway through this pandemic to really focus on exactly what you're talking about, and that's how this taxed the healthcare system. So in other words, although we were able to cope uh, with some very extreme measures of of, of taking care of these people in, for example, overcrowded ICU units and such. What this has done is brought everyone else's surgery, everyone else's procedures that were supposed to happen to a grinding halt while the healthcare system concentrated on on this virus. We're going to see the repercussions of this for a while, are we not? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in so many ways, they're multifactorial. You know, we've got all of these folks whose care have been delayed uh, that are now suffering related to that. We are seeing excess deaths, as we describe in this report, you know, 4,000 deaths just in a five-month period related likely to de- delays in care and problems with access and care. I think we're likely only starting to understand uh, all the misdiagnoses because of cancer screening that didn't happen, the progression of chronic disease that normally would have been managed differently with more access to care, and and how those things are going to impact as, as the rest of this pandemic unfolds. And, you know, as we're concerning now, of course, is with this new variant is how much longer might this pandemic go on. Um, so the, the field posts keep moving, things keep changing, and, and the healthcare system, you know, is chugging along doing what it can, but it is very, very strained. And we know it was strained prior to this global pandemic. And as you've stated, this report has drawn attention to this. We've certainly, over the last year and a half as Canadians, hopefully have learned to pay more attention to our healthcare system and, and, and the stress that it is under. What can we learn from this? And, and how do we make sure that, you know, once we get out of the, out of the woods here, that, you know, things just don't fall back into place? I think what we really have to take away is we cannot be complacent about our healthcare system. You know, I think our healthcare system is a source of pride for Canadians and it, it's something that, that people often feel really good about when they think about it. But I think over the years we have become complacent. I think there's challenges because of the divide between the provincial and federal governments in terms of responsibilities to deliver health care. Um, and, and I think what that's led to is a system that's really stagnated. You know, it was designed to deliver care in the 1950s population has changed, healthcare professionals have changed, technology's changed, and, and we haven't seen our healthcare system really modernized to keep up with that. So I think, you know, where, where, where we find ourselves today is a system that's been neglected. I think the pandemic has really made Canadians realize that. And I think we have to keep shining a light on these issues. And, and that's part of the reason for reports like this is to keep this front of mind in policy for policymakers, for government officials. Um, and I think we really need Canadians, you know, to give that message loud and clear we're done with these silos of care. We're done with a healthcare system that's being neglected. You know, this is important. At some point, I think everyone needs some sort of care from the healthcare system. And if it's not there for us, there's going to be serious consequences. And this report is starting to show us what those look like. Uh, we certainly saw what happens when you break down those silos and when it comes to vaccine research and the record time that, that these vaccines were produced just by doing that, breaking down those silos. Obviously, in Canada, healthcare is a provincial, a provincial jurisdi- uh, j- uh, jurisdiction. And, you know, when the time's right, feds are in. When it's not, they're out. What do we need more collaboration between both the federal and provincial government? Do we need a more centralized system? Well, I think we need more collaboration. You know, of course, there's lots of value to healthcare being delivered close to home and people having an understanding of local or even mm-hmm. provincial scale needs. 
Um, so I, I don't think we want to lose that. But, you know, what's also clear is some things can be standardized, and there's also a lot to be gained by collaborating. We have the federal government as one of the major funders of healthcare, but they don't have a lot of ability to impact how that care delivery looks. You know, we have different things being tried in different provinces. Some things are successful, other things don't go as well, but we're not sharing those lessons. We're not learning from each other. We have a health workforce that's limited by provincial and territorial licensing that doesn't allow us to deploy people where they're needed and not fully take advantage of virtual care. So I think all of these things need to be modernized. We need to break down the silos and we need people to truly collaborate so that we can actually redesign the system to serve Canadians. Dr. Catherine Smart with us, president of the Canadian Medical Association, a new report saying the fallout of COVID-19 and how we have to collaborate and work more as a team. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Obviously, uh, the uh, federal government announcing new restrictions today in regard to uh, three more countries uh, having flight bans in South Africa. Also, uh, that uh, anybody coming into uh, landing at an airport in Canada, uh, with the exception of the United States, will be tested. Uh, That just announced uh, a few minutes, a few hours ago. Let's bring in Richard Vanderloo, president at TripCentral.ca. And with us now, Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Nice to talk to you again. It's great to speak with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Obviously, uh, as we look up, we can see that more people are traveling. There's more planes in the sky. We've heard anecdotally that, you know, even trying to get a passport now, it's quite busy to do such a thing. Uh, and it really seemed like people were starting to get some more confidence. Has this affected the industry in any way, Richard? Oh, sure. Like we had um, normally our, our Black Friday event for the last few years when it became a thing in Canada. <laughs> Um, was one of our busiest days, and it and it did sort of take a little bit of the wind out of the sails. I mean, we had a lot of we had more bookings at that point in this weekend than we've had for some time, probably going back till about June. But um, you know, sure, this news like this comes out, and people kind of stop and wonder, what does this mean, and and what should I be doing at this time? So, what should they be doing? What uh, what what are the biggest questions you're getting asked? Uh, what where are people's heads right now? Well, I think. We should start with the people that are booking, right? So I think they're they're a little a little hardier than 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 most, right? I think mm-hmm. the one thing that we do know is that um, the one thing that's probably not going to change is that things are going to change. <laughs> yeah, and things are always changing. And whenever you're booking travel now, you've got to be of the mind that things could change. So it's sort of like trying to make a prediction about you know what's the weather going to be like on New Year's Eve, and should I yeah. go out or not? And I mean. It, it is a bit difficult to answer because it is a hypothetical. And I think where people have to think about is, if I cancel now, um, it's a voluntary cancellation. If I, if I wait and see what happens New Year's Eve, whenever your travel plans are, as my example is, um, and things are canceled on you, it's an involuntary change that, that happens, and you're usually in a better position as a consumer with an involuntary change that's done to you than you asking to cancel because you're mm. speculating what it might be. And we have this with hurricanes. When in the past when hurricanes were brewing and they were, you know, all in the media about where they might go and, and we would get tons of calls. What's gonna happen? What might happen? well we don't know which island it's gonna hit. Yeah. And so you don't want to cancel because it's gonna skate right by your island and you're why would you cancel your vacation when you could have gone? So I think there's a lot of speculation. We're getting calls today uh, and in the last few days. And a lot of it is, I think it's just human nature, right? People are unsettled and they just want to know what should they be doing, if anything. And really, if you have existing travel plans, it's just to hold on. You know, we will call you, your agent will call you um, with whatever needs to happen. But I think people that are booking now have to kind of go with the flow. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, well, what else are we doing? So if, good point, how long can you, you know, go around in circles? Uh, what do we need to know if we are, you know, say you talked about people who have already booked and now this happens. What about people who are, you know, planning to book, say, something for post-Christmas, uh, winter, that sort of thing? What sort of things do they need to know? Insurance, for example, because obviously the big the big concern here is uh, out-of-pocket costs. What happens if, you know, I get yeah. stuck down there? What happens if my flight gets canceled? Uh, or, or even, you know, what happens if I, everything went great and the holiday was fabulous and then i'm about to get on the plane and i test positive how what should we know when booking there is a ton to know and so as a matter of fact it's so much that 
it's difficult for our agents to to get out, and these conversations are long yeah. because they're also interrupted with with more questions. Whereas we're trying to get the information out, so we're actually producing a video to actually go through all of it because not not to be like when you, you know you're dealing with your credit card and you get transferred and you have to listen to this recording, yeah. but it it really is almost like the flight. Uh, check in, you know, the, the safety video to say this is what you need to know. So we're actually developing it that way to make sure people are aware. But there's a lot to know is one, you know, do you need advanced testing? And and that's now readily available in, in pharmacies and easy to do. Um, two, do you need to fill out forms? We tell you that. So we'll tell you and we'll actually tell you up to seven days prior to departure to say, here's the current conditions. There's no point worrying about what might be in February. You don't worry about it till a week prior if if all's going well. And, you know, each step that comes back, you have to, you have to test on the return. You've got to fill out the ArriveCan app. Is it all worth it? Sure. The people that are traveling are saying it's absolutely worth it. I've been away. I'm, I'm hoping to go away in a couple more weeks. It sounds like a big hassle, but it's pretty well established right now. And certainly in the U S it's, you know, they're at 90% of their pre pandemic flying in the U S and I know it's not a fair comparison to, to Canada, but it, it, they're not missing a beat there. Um, and, and I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that the, the protocols are, are established. And I think we, we will follow whatever the public health guidance, whatever the government says and advise our clients. And I think people just need to be, you know, if you want to go, it may not happen, but there's a good chance it might, you know, so now, are there insurance policies that will cover any added costs that people are concerned about? So in the beginning of the pandemic, the, the level three advisory that was there that said all non-essential travel, like that was a blanket problem for travel insurance. That, that's yeah. lifted. It's now on a, on a country by country basis. And so while cancellation insurance itself does not cover the pandemic, there are other mitigators. One, if it's an involuntary change, airlines and suppliers have been refunding. Um, you can also buy, buy a supplier waiver. So if you decide to change or cancel that, you know, you don't lose everything, you keep a credit. Or you can buy insurance for the normal cancellation risks that doesn't cover everything. It never did. But the big thing is medical insurance. So for a while, they weren't covering any COVID-related costs. The general policies for medical are now covering that. So again, things could change, but as as of what it is right now, um, that's that's the current status. And obviously, the best route is to make sure you contact your travel agent and have the latest information. Uh, Richard Vanderlip with us, president at TripCentral.ca. Richard, as always, thanks so much for the time. Happy traveling. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In case you haven't uh, realized, um, the story of Jeffrey Epstein and his sexual exploits continues. Uh, Jelaine or Ghislaine Maxwell's trial began yesterday in New York, and it's alleged she is uh, Jeffrey Epstein's number two in this hierarchy of uh, whatever it is that they were doing. Obviously, uh, Epstein uh, was to go to trial and. Uh, uh, committed, so they say, took his own life in, uh, in, in, while in custody waiting for trial. And now the focus has moved to Maxwell and what she knew about the exploits and, and what was going on there. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ari Goldkind, defense lawyer. He is with us now. Ari, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Always good to talk to you and future signs of the apocalypse, whether it's the Epstein, Maxwell, Omicron, or whatever silly Latin variant they come up with for the next one. So what has happened in the first couple of days here, Ari? What are we seeing? So it's kind of interesting because the opening statements told us a lot. There's a lot here that people don't know. And you mentioned that she's number two. And leaving aside the obvious joke that can be made on that, you know, the defense's strongest part of their opening statement was twofold. That one... She's a scapegoat for Epstein and what Epstein did. And because he ostensibly killed himself, she's sort of the proxy defendant for all of the ire of the world. That was number one. Number two, and it sort of has similar overtones to Gomeshi. If you remember how much Gomeshi was sort of the case of the century in Canadian sort mm-hmm. of Me Too jurisprudence, that completely collapsed once the stories were tested in cross-examination. 
And what the defense lawyer made very clear in her opening statement is that there's a lot more here than meets the eye. There are going to be two central issues, as I see them. One, the age of the uh, the alleged victims at the time of these events. We'll get to the second witness today. That was some pretty interesting testimony. But also the fact that you can't take money and huge, significant sums of money out of this case because many of these alleged victims have been compensated and looked to be compensated to the tune of millions and millions of dollars for the Epstein fund. And when you add in the lawyers that, you know, frequently find themselves behind a camera in these cases, or sorry, in front of the camera, I should say, the Gloria Allreds, her daughter, Lisa Bloom, I expect the defense to really go through that you cannot take the word of these women uh, uh, to the bank. However, the first witness today, Scott, uh, provided some pretty compelling evidence. And uh, as you said, uh, they're accusing uh, prosecution. She's becoming a scapegoat. Her family also weighed in on this, saying that she was a scapegoat. Um, Because he is no longer with us, um, does that mean she has less to explain? At the end of the day, uh, do we still not need to know what her role was in all of this? Well, we do, and her role is allegedly as a co-conspirator. She's charged with a number of conspiracy counts in the States. Essentially, if I could use the easiest word, is that she groomed uh, these women to be Mm -hmm. taken in by Epstein. And that was the second witness of the trial, the first of the women who says at 14 years old, she met Miss Maxwell. Uh, Miss Maxwell was walking her dog. She petted the dog. She was 14 years old. One thing led to another, and Miss Maxwell was grooming her. The thing about the story, the thing about the story that's really fascinating is just the turns that it takes. The first witness was a pilot, and, you know, that was what's called on the Lolita Express, the plane that uh, Jeffrey Epstein used. But um, I really think at the end of the day, the proxy or the scapegoating here of Miss Maxwell is going to come into significant play. But that first witness, the first alleged victim, I should say, who uh, was testifying throughout today, was some pretty compelling evidence. But again, Scott, as you know, cross-examination has not yet started. Is this less about a conviction and more about naming names? Uh, Obviously, there's allegedly a long list of... Uh, of people here involved with Epstein, uh, does she sit up, you know, start naming those names? Is that an out for her? I don't think so. I think if that card was going to be played, it would have been played already. I'll tell you why. I think a lot of people are tuning into this who've watched the Netflix series. The names Clinton, Dershowitz, you know, I think Trump has even come into the discussion at some point. Yeah. I think people are looking for that. If she was going to flip, I think that deal would have been done already. Remember, she didn't get bail. It was a horrendous decision to not grant her bail. She should have been granted bail. Every one of your listeners will disagree with me. I probably don't have time to go into why, but she should have been given bail. These allegations are from 1994 to 2004. And the reason people are tuning in to hear the name Bill Gates or Clinton is because she ticks the right demographic checkboxes in 2021, Scott. You know, this trial and the Rittenhouse trial, for example, has sort of, central casting defendants they're the right demographic they're the right color she comes from the billionaires um she's the billionaire's daughter you know you look at what happened a week ago in wakesha wisconsin where an evil piece of garbage ran over uh, an entire parade route and you know it's almost like where's waldo that's being disappeared from the media because that accused killer or alleged killer doesn't tick the right demographic checkboxes of today. It's sort of outrageous to me as a citizen. Miss Maxwell isn't accused of running people over. She's accused of pretty horrible things. And if convicted, she serves to pay a price. But there's a lewd and lascivious and salacious quality to this that I think is why so many people are interested in it. But the way she's been treated by the criminal justice system, and again, I'm appreciating that I will not change any mind is she's being treated almost as if she's in a Paul Bernardo-like situation versus, as you said in the intro, the number two to Jeffrey Epstein. That doesn't excuse anything, and she's having her day in court, but she is certainly being treated as a proxy for Epstein, and she most certainly cannot be said to be Epstein, although 
you know, as I want to be fair, grooming underage children for this kind of behavior and serving them up to Mr. Epstein is probably as egregious as you can think of if she is found guilty of those things which are really, truly child sex trafficking. So what are the chances, in your opinion, I know it's very early, we're crystal balling it here, uh, what are the chances of a conviction? How ugly is this going to get? Well, when you get a jury that is going to hear from four separate women, four separate women, it's sort of like we've learned with Cosby and Weinstein, if you recall those cases, where it's one thing if it's one versus one, right? Like Cosby's first jury was hung because Mm -hmm. there were fewer women. Then the second trial happens and the judge allows in five more. If the four women's story here are eerily similar, that their age of consent, remember, in certain states where the accusations take place, the age of consent is 16. You know, everybody in Canada thinks 18, 21, something like that. We're not talking about drinking liquor in a club. So the age of consent is something I think will be very, very important. If the prosecution can get past the two, I think, number one defenses here, age of consent, certainly critical according to the defense lawyer but then the lack of poisoning into the well of wanting to be famous or wealthy which again we haven't yet even scratched the surface of what the cross-examination of these four uh, women will be i don't think this is a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination i don't think the pilot's evidence today was all that helpful to the prosecution but we are living in a day and age in the me too movement where you have a very well-to-do Caucasian person on trial, and I don't think a jury is going to bend over backwards to acquit them. And just why I make that point, if you look two weeks ago at the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, that's a verdict that in a different day and age would have taken three hours, but because we're in a different era, it took three days. So I think all of these outside concerns are unfortunately, in my view as a lawyer, sort of infecting and coming into the jury pool with tremendous pressure. And I'd be very surprised if she's not convicted of at least a count or two. Hmm. Defense lawyer Ari Goldkind with us. Ari, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great to be on with you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of megaphones, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news and columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. And with us now, Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, it was until that introduction. <laughs> what do you mean? Speaking of megaphones, yeah, okay. That's well, you I'm... got a megaphone, bud. You're up there. I got a megaphone, uh, and although uh, yours uh, is way bigger than mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I digress. Michael Scott, Michael Scott used to say something in the office, and I won't use the line. But anyway, carry on. I, you know, I heard your uh, promo today for your show, and I can't remember what it was about, but it did make me laugh. I digress. All right, uh, let's go to the poll question of the day. Obviously, we're hearing about Omicron. Omicron. Man, I keep saying it wrong. It's Omicron. Omicron. Uh, poll question of the day. Should borders be closed until we know more about this new variant? Obviously, we have just heard over the course of the afternoon that uh, now everyone coming into a Canadian airport, with the exception of the United States, will have to undergo a test when they get off the plane. Uh, also restricting travel to three other South African countries. Uh, that being said, uh, borders closed until we know more. What are your thoughts, Scott? You know, uh, I think you and I talked about this the other day, kind of. And if you go back to the very beginning of this whole thing, the government didn't want to stop flights coming in. And in some cases, the accusation was that stopping flights would be racist. And there were other reasons. And you know what? We got into a... There were other countries that did. New Zealand, easier situation when you're an island, for sure. But um, had way better success. And... Uh, you know, I, like I'm, uh, I'm tired of the hysteria and of guessing that this is going to be the new worst thing ever. We but said the same thing about Delta. We said the same thing about Delta exactly. when it started, and now it's the prevalent uh, strain. But if we don't know, and if there's real belief that this thing could be really bad, and here's the problem: we've heard from some groups. I think World Health Organization said this thing sounds terrible, sounds horrendous. And others have said, yeah, the symptoms are really mild. It's not that big a deal. So, I, Scott, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But if there are those who are saying this is a real problem and this could be a huge issue, it does seem like we should be taking more severe positions 
as far as allowing the borders to stay open, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to March of 2020 and start this whole process over again. I hear you. All right, let's move on to something that isn't COVID-related. Tiger Woods announcing that uh, uh, he's going to step down, or is he? I mean, he, he doesn't look like he's going to play professionally again. What are your thoughts on where he is? Is he lucky to even be upright and retaining fluids at this point? Uh, yeah, there was a story that said he was really close in this accident to having his leg amputated. Yeah. Um, that's bad. But, no, he didn't say he's not going to play professionally again. He says he's not going to go on tour again. So he's going to pick and right. choose yeah. what tournaments to play in. And, you know, here's the thing about Tiger Woods now. He, he's not certainly at the point that Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicholas was, you know, because they're now old. Well, Arnold Palmer's passed away, but Jack Nicholas is an old man. But he's almost at that point where you can say, doesn't really matter if Tiger Woods yeah. wins. He yeah. is just such a draw just to show yeah. up. So any tournament that could convince him just to show up, guaranteed sellout now. Yeah. He can finish last. Guaranteed sellout. Every tournament would say, I don't need you to win. Just be here. Just be Tiger. Just walk the fairways. Even if you don't make the cut, walk the fairways for two days. The golf Network, all the broadcasters, everybody, everybody's happy. That's, that's. Do you think he will accept that role, that new role in his life as just ambassador to the game as opposed to someone that can get up there, uh, you know, every so many weekends and make it happen? I don't know. And that's the, that's the thing, because the one thing that made Tiger Woods Tiger Woods is the same thing that made Wayne Gretzky Wayne Gretzky and yeah. made, you know, all the great athletes of their time. They, it's the competition. They have to win. It's not that they want to win. They have to win. And I, I, we'll see. Some, some athletes can morph very lovely into that role of being the glad hander and the ambassador and the smiley face and, I don't care if I win or not, but I, I, some can't. And I, I honestly don't know if he's going to be able to be the guy or if it's going to frustrate him to such an extent that he's just going to say, ah, forget this. I'm just going to go play for fun somewhere. Because I, I don't know. I, I don't know if a guy who's been that intense. I remember, he's lightened up. But for a time, you used to get the Tiger Woods yeah. death stare, which was not usual golf. I, I don't yeah. know. We'll see. I think the big check at the end of the weekend will help him with all of that. Yeah, uh, he's got lots of checks, though. I don't think he's ever going to craft dinner out of necessity. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up moments from now after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You too. That is a wrap. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will Weber and Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks for contributing. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word. 403 was nuts on my way home today. I mean, I moved maybe like two car lengths every five minutes. It was ridiculous. My 20-minute drive was an hour and a half. I never got it before, but driving on that highway made me, made me realize why people flip cars. That was ridiculous.